Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. It really is a, a passion area for me to let young women know you have a seat at this table. You are welcomed at the table. We need your expertise, your differentiated point of view um, coming to the table. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 94. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Holly Mazaka. Holly is President, Wealth Advisor, and Principal at Bartlett Wealth Management in Cincinnati. Her development of Bartlett's vision and strategy ensures its clients receive customized wealth management solutions and impeccable service. Holly fosters a team approach to the firm's work driven by the core values of teamwork, integrity, and diligence. I love those values. As President, Holly builds upon Bartlett's rich legacy to develop an innovative future. Recent initiatives included program of services and events for women called WeVest, We Invest, Women Empowered to Invest, as well as the launch of a podcast, ESG Integration and Family Office Services. Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. Well, thank you, Naftali. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was great. You know, and it's really, what a wonderful bio. So much to unpack. I probably could just dive into those values um, the entire time, and we'd have plenty to talk about. Uh, but I'm interested in kind of like the backstory here. You know, we, you, I'll be very honest with you, and I hope this doesn't come across in the wrong way. Uh, when I think of people in wealth management, I usually think of men. That's sort of like the paradigm, if you will. That's the the, the gender that sort of dominated the space in my mind for a really long time. So I'm curious to know. Obviously, you're not new at this. You've been at it for a while, so you had to be thinking about this years ago. I'm curious how you got into it. And um, what your experience has been like as a woman in, again, I think statistically even, a male-dominated space. You're right. It, it is statistically a male-dominated space. And I'll have to admit that I sort of fell into this world by accident. When I was in college, I too thought of this as a pretty male-dominated space. Uh, not something that was necessarily at the top of my radar screen. And even when you're in business school, they don't talk about it as much as they talk about investment banking or consulting or corporate finance or accounting. So I ended up getting a job with JP Morgan Wealth Management in Chicago, uh, right at the height of the financial crisis. And I chose JP Morgan because the two guys they sent down to Indiana University uh, were really fun, seemed like they worked really hard and they were really smart. And I figured, hey, why not give this a chance? JP Morgan's a great firm. And I couldn't be happier that I did. Uh, now, admittedly joining at the height of the financial crisis, there were a few days where I thought, what did I get myself into? Um, but you're right that this is a relatively male-dominated field. But what I think is so fascinating about it is how good women are at this job. The interesting thing about wealth management and investments is it's not like physics. There's no you know, laws of wealth management. You have to do it this way and then you will get this result. It's really incredibly dynamic. And every day the markets offer you something new and every client offers you something new. 
So they are, there can be these principles that we follow, but it's, it's so dynamic, it's ever-changing, and it's really this combination of the, the finance acumen, but it's so behavioral. And more and more, it's going down the path of life planning and planning for your goals and really listening to what the client needs so you're not so prescriptive, but really building a very customized approach for the client. So mm. I think that's why it, it really is a, a passion area for me to let young women know you have a seat at this table. You are welcomed at the table. We need your expertise, your differentiated point of view um, coming to the table. Mm. So let, let's actually stay there for a minute, Holly, if you don't mind, because I, I do want to understand from your perspective what it is that really, uh, I mean, obviously we can't overgeneralize by gender and say men are all like this, you know, the, 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 the Mars and Venus thing has certain, maybe some underpinnings, but fundamentally every person is unique. Uh, yeah. That said, that said, what is it that you see in terms of women's capacity, both in leadership and specifically in terms of, I, I, I sort of discern there uh, some soft skill components, the listening, uh, the capacity to differentiate um, between one client and another, between one situation and another. What would you say are some of the distinct, for lack of a better term, competitive advantages or at least qualities that you see in a lot of your female peers that really make them you know, the kind of go-to people that others should be looking for um, in the wealth, you know, management and advisory space? When I see great female advisors, whether it's at Bartlett or elsewhere, they are awesome listeners. They're not sitting there waiting to say, hey, this is what we should do. This is the action we should take. They're really absorbing it. And, you know, male or female, I think that makes a great wealth advisor. It's, it's just that I see naturally sometimes that, you know, young women coming into the field, that is something they bring to the table. Is this um, a, a proclivity to be able to really listen and understand what's at the root? And maybe not just what a client is saying, but sometimes what they're not saying. Some of the best breakthroughs I've had with clients have come in the meeting after the meeting. You may sit down with a husband and wife and they both say, yes, we want this vacation home. We want to make this work. But you kind of sense, you know, something's not quite right here. And then you have a follow-up conversation. You go out for a coffee, you take a walk and um, it comes out, you know, Maybe someone isn't as on board as their spouse is, or maybe there's something that they don't want to necessarily come out and say. And so just being able to foster that comfort level where your clients really trust you and they trust that they can share these, you know, really difficult moments for them, for their family, and having a, a diversified team at the table, not, not just women, not just men, but a diversified team that comes with different backgrounds and cultural experiences, it really allows you to connect with the client. And our CEO, Jim Haggerty, loves to say, you know, your, your clients want to know that you care before they care what you know. When you're in this business and you have the letters behind your name, it's sort of saying like, yeah, we, we can do the nuts and bolts of this. But when I 
find the, the best client experiences happen are when we really connect on a deeper level. And I think that women can bring some, some really natural insights uh, to that part of this job. Mm, yeah. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. And uh, if it's not a fair question, you can tell me. But if I was turning you into a coach rather than a financial advisor for just a moment, and I was asking you to coach people on how to become better listeners, right? Because you've talked about it. I'm sure you know it when you see it. That doesn't always mean that you necessarily can teach it, right? There are oftentimes people who are excellent. I think of athletes all the time. You know, who are the people who typically become the managers or the coaches? It's not the all-stars, although some do. Many of them were the backup catchers or the, you know, the utility infielder for baseball or thinking of other, other positions or backups, whatever, because they had time to watch and they typically had a different vantage point. It didn't come naturally for them. So they kind of had more opportunity to think it through. It may come naturally for you, but I'm wondering if you were to be giving somebody advice on the topic of being a really good listener, what does that look like to you? And what are some things people need to be mindful of if they're not necessarily intuitively, you know, I'm an introvert, so I tend to listen more. I think it's just part of how I'm wired and many people have that, but some people have to work because they're so used to talking. They want to just put their wisdom out there. How do you advise people to become better listeners? So I am the extrovert. I'm the one who wants to talk, who wants to fill the void and you really have to buck that natural instinct. You have to fight against that natural instinct because our instinct when we're connecting with someone, when we're building a relationship is to say, oh, we have things in common. So a client may be saying, oh, my, um, you know, my daughter's going off to school at Indiana in the fall. And I love Indiana so much from my experience. It's my natural instinct to say, I too went to Indiana. How great. Let's form a shared connection over that. But if you're a really great listener, you have to save that. You can't jump in right away because it will take the conversation down a different track and the client doesn't necessarily, or whoever it is that you're sharing with, doesn't have that full opportunity to share. There's this idea of the power of the pause. And this is incredibly different, difficult for me. I've really had to work at it because I want to naturally fill that void. We don't like dead air. And as a podcast host, you especially don't want any dead air. But sometimes if you're really listening, it's okay to let that pause sit there and see if the client or the, the sharer has something else by resting for one two, three beats. It feels like a lifetime to the listener, but to the person sharing, they, they may just be gathering their thoughts. They may be thinking, you know, is there something more? And I think that's a great way to also be a, a very engaged listener is when the person does finish sharing, use that question. Is there anything more you'd like to tell me? Is there anything more that you'd like to share? And then let it sit and let them think, you know, is there something else that, that is on their mind? And it may be related to that first item. It may take you down a new track so that they don't feel that they're being rushed through a conversation, that they don't feel that they're, 
you know, in our modern day doctor's office where you know you have four minutes with that doctor and you got to get it all out. They give you the prescription and they're on to the next patient. It's really more, hey, I have all the time in the world for you. Even if so many of us feel that we don't, we want to make that other person really believe that we do and feel that they are the most important person in that moment. So the power of the pause, don't jump in right away to make those connections. There'll be an opportunity to come back to that. And also just the simple question of, is there anything more you'd like to share? I'm just joking. <laughs> I gotta put it out there just, just to indicate that I was I was gonna try to practice what you're preaching there. And so Holly, do you have anything else you'd like to share? That was great, by the way. Um, you should know as a former teacher, um, I'm very big on the idea of what's called wait time. And this actually relates to the idea that students often know information that for whatever the reason they need time to activate retrieval cues. So for the most part, at least according to Madeline Hunter is considered one of the experts in the area of education, she um, established, I guess, either on her own research or based on others, that it takes often up to seven seconds for a student to be able to hear the question, retrieve the information, and then bring it back to the class, which is why teachers have the same problem that financial and wealth advisors have, or really anybody has who wants to get in, get it done, and get on with it especially if you're in a class where you're concerned that if you leave a void, it'll be filled by, you know, paper airplanes, spitballs, or any other type of childlike activity because, you know, quiet tends to lend itself to chaos over time. But if teachers, as they become more comfortable, as they establish themselves with their classroom management and really own the space, they create permission to allow students to have that retrieval time without the other students sort of jumping the gun and it balances the playing field. So it's very useful actually from a cognitive standpoint to give people a little bit more time because they may think of something on their own. And then your question, Holly, about is there anything else you wanna share will we'll extract it from them if they don't think of it on their own just by allowing a little bit of extra time. And it's a discipline. It really is something that I would imagine for extroverts in particular, it could be tough. You know, you really want to jump in. You want to sound smart. You want to sound witty. You want to be with them. And you feel like the best way to connect with them is to talk more. And oftentimes the best way to connect with somebody is to be physically present, but to talk less. In fact, I, I know the research is pretty clear that most of the communication we do actually is not the words that we say. It's the, it's the body language, it's the posture, it's the proximity, it's the, uh, you know, a lot of the nonverbals, even the tone, the inflection factor in as well. So there's a lot that goes into communication and we pick up so much just by the person that we're in front of, whether we're in front of them virtually, which I can already sort of, we're connecting on some level, but obviously mm -hmm. if you're in person, it's that much more. So there was really, you know, a lot of wisdom in what you shared. And um, I want to sort of say within that, that sweet spot, that comfort zone for you and really try to understand the strategic element of the work that you do. So people come to you, obviously, I'm sure everybody's coming because they want to have more money, uh, a better life, you know, however that's ultimately defined for them. So because of the 
what's the word? I would call it somewhat amorphous nature of this, right? There's so many variables, so many possibilities, almost like an infinite amount of directions that, that you can go if you're trying to help somebody live a better life through increased wealth and increased security. How do you help people to establish a strategy without getting into all the weeds and all the technicalities of it? What would be some of the broad strokes? Because again, this is not a podcast for wealth advisors. This is a podcast for leaders, but all of us deal with strategy. All of us need to think strategically for ourselves, for our people, for our clients, et cetera. So maybe some of the guidelines that you use to create strategy for for your customers, your clients, would be beneficial, you know, for all of us to consider. Absolutely. And I'll also link it to how we build strategy for Bartlett as an organization. So not just what we do with our clients, but how we build it for our organization as a whole. And it really starts with the why. So the Simon Sinek start with why and coming back to the the real purpose of... Sorry, it's a little, it's a little fuzzy here, but, but it, that is the book that I just picked up here. Oh. I have it like, I have, I have it like, hey, there you I don't go. Think you can it's read in that. right there. I don't think you can read it, but I just, I just pulled it right off the shelf. Anyway, go ahead. I, I apologize. And we did not plan that. So no. uh, there you go. It's just sitting right there. Um, but really you start with, you know, what are, what are the problems that you're facing today? But beyond just the problems of today, what is the picture you want to paint for the future? And getting really detailed around what that future looks like. So at Bartlett as an organization, we build a vision. So we have Vision 2025 that we engaged across our organization. It wasn't just at our leadership level, but it was really across the organization that we built this vision for what we want Bartlett Wealth Management to look like five years from now. And in it, we say we want to be the premier wealth advisory firm. Well, what does that mean? For us, Premier means that we want to create an amazing experience for the clients we serve, and we want to help them live their best lives. So it's not the biggest, it's not the fastest growing, it's really the experience we're creating for our clients. And then we break that vision down. And we used uh, Cameron Harold's Vivid Vision book to help us with our first vision setting exercises. And that's one that I would highly recommend for leaders to help you paint this picture of what you want in the future. And we do the same thing with our clients. But if you paint this picture of what you want in the future, like with any business, a personal wealth strategy is the same. As you said, Naftali, you can, you can get there a mi- many different ways. Uh, it's just as much of an art as it is a science. There's no one perfect path. So from there, we build out the financial plan. We use all the inputs of what the world looks like today. But we love to say it's not just about the static set of reports. And just like with your business strategy, if you build a business strategy one time and you just let it sit there until next year, we all know that doesn't work. So you have to come back to it time and time again. And for a great financial plan, it really helps you make decisions. So if you're a business owner or a leader and you pull out that financial plan, you pull out that business plan, and when a decision comes up, you say, is this idea that I'm crafting, is this opportunity going to get me closer to this long-term vision? Or is this a bit of noise? It's going to take me off this long-term path because there are just a multitude of opportunities we could cover. Um, and we can't, we can't do them all. So we have to stay focused on what that vision is and get toward that. 
And as a part of our financial planning process for clients, we build out those scenarios and we have a tool where we can actually run those scenarios in real time to help them say, you know, what if my spouse decides not to go back to work after we have our second child? What if I leave my current role and start a a new venture on my own? What if I retire early? What if I get sick? What if my parents get sick and I have to care for them? So there's all these scenarios that we can craft and understand what that looks like. But then just like in that business plan, you have to take it and you have to bring it to life. And that's the execution part of it. So we say that our financial plans inform the investment plan. And the execution is such a critical part of that. And that's where in our business, you can do it many, many different ways. But in the big picture, it comes down to setting the appropriate asset allocation, understanding risk tolerance beyond just what someone writes in a questionnaire, what comes out of that financial plan, and then going um, really to make sure that they are sticking with the long-term and they're not allowing current situations like what we're facing right now in our world to derail what the long-term plan says. Okay. So there's a lot there. And I'm sure obviously, as you get into specifics with your clients, you can see what all of that looks like. So I I want to ask you a different question. Um, It's sort of a question that's coming to me now, just relating to your bio, relating to what you just said, as far as strategy you know, values are obviously an important piece too. Uh, they're kind of like our compass, our North Star. They're the things that point us in the right direction when we, when we have circumstance of uncertainty, we're not sure, or we have different opportunities to pursue. You sort of reference opportunity cost, right? I can't do everything. So I have mm-hmm. to stick with what my plan tells me to do. But sometimes, especially in the areas of interpersonal and just core ethics, I use my values as my North Star, as my guidelines. Um, So I know that you had focused at least the ones that I read before, teamwork, integrity, diligence. Um, How did you guys come up with, or maybe that's your own, uh, that set of values? How do you advise leaders in general to go through the exercise? Because values alone, I mean, they've got to be almost an infinite number of values too, but certainly a very long list. And none of them are necessarily wrong. But if I value, let's call it profit or expediency, you know, I have one client, for example, who values speed uh, in the insurance business as an important consideration. You, you, you send me a request, you'll get something back quickly, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you have to balance that against certain other considerations relating to pressure you put on your team, relating to work-life balance or how much you want to be investing. You know, do you want to be doing the 60-hour work week, that type of thing? So Holly, from your standpoint, what is your process to get to the values that speak to you and what would you advise for leaders as well? Yeah, real quick, the sun is now shining in Cincinnati. So I'm going to stand up real quick and close my blinds so that it doesn't keep blinding us and our viewers. We started out with a gray, gray day and now it is sunny, 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 which bodes well for everybody. Okay, that's a little better. So in terms of the values, Kelly Downing, our former chairman, uh, chairwoman, built what we call the Bartlett Way. And you can see this poster on, the, on my uh, door back here where we built our behaviors to live by. And uh, that lays out a lot of different behaviors, 22 in fact, but we really narrowed it down to the ones that we say, what is 
going to be differentiated about Bartlett and what's going to drive our team to really stay focused on the mission at hand, which is to provide a great experience for our clients and also give back to our community and build a great family around us. And so that's where teamwork really came into play. Um, We do not serve our clients as, you know, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Client, I'm Holly, I'm your advisor and your only point of contact. Uh, We really surround them with the team so that they are a client of Bartlett's. They're not just a client of, you know, Holly per se. And that's critically important to us. There are a few great books that I love that help with this. Uh, Number one, The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni, and also Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Um, Lencioni's book is much more for the organization, and Brene Brown um, was great for personal values. So one of my personal values that I strive to integrate as a leader is never stop growing and developing this thirst for knowledge. So in our team, uh, we're always talking about, you know, what more can we do to make sure that we're continuing to grow as individuals and that we're helping our clients grow, that we're helping our colleagues grow, and that we're reinvesting in the community around us. Uh, So I really think that if you look at those personal pillars of what speaks to your core, It takes some time to go through and analyze it, but it's a very valuable conversation with your team. And then every month I go through as a leader and we highlight one of our Bartlett Way values. Our value for the month of January was look ahead. Our value for the month of March right now is um, deliver excellent client service. Uh, So really highlighting one of those at a time and making sure that we're calling out our, our colleagues who are doing a great job at that. Love it. Okay. So that, that piece on, uh, on lifelong learning is, is particularly resonating with me. Not only do I uh, try to listen to audiobooks all the time, I don't have a ton of time for actual reading. Um, in fact, I often say I read such and such and I have to remind myself I listened to it, uh, but it's a <laughs> continuous, it's a continuous process. And I will tell you, as somebody who changed careers in a way, I used to be, as I mentioned before, in the classroom and then school leader. And all of my listeners know that my background to leadership coaching and just leadership conversations really came from leadership in the area of school and nonprofit management. Um, at the same time, um, I had a, a, a career change about nine years ago at this point didn't even know what I was getting into, couldn't have even articulated at the time the difference between a coach and a consultant, hung a shingle, got to work and just, you know, did what I could to get to this point. But um, the idea that you want to continue to grow is critical. Not only do you want to fill yourself and always get better, but you never know. You never know when are you going to need a new set of skills. The market oftentimes is the driver, personal circumstances could be the driver, just personal interests. You know, you never know. And having as much, obviously, you want to be targeted and focused. You can't learn everything. So you have to be able to be clear on what you're trying to get to. Uh, but that, that's really very valuable. And just knowing your values and cycling through them, all of that was really, really good. Uh, a couple of other things I wanted to get to before we, we pivot in our segment. One of them is about community. And specifically, I know you're very focused on supporting women, including services and events and stuff like that, as we talked about. Um, 
not everybody sees community as that important. You know, many people just focus on themselves, their own families, their own work, and the community kind of exists around them. And then there are people who take a much more proactive role and really try to be uh, builders, if you will, of community. So, so talk me through that piece, Holly. What's, what's your driver um, in terms of getting involved on that level? And why do you see community in general as being so important? For me, community is what lifts us up. None of us arrived where we are today without those around us. Whether we, you know, have an opportunity to stop and thank those people or whether maybe it happened behind the scenes and we didn't necessarily always know all of those connective pieces along the way. I feel extremely fortunate to be in the role that I'm in, to have the opportunities that I've had. And I feel that it's my job to lift as I climb and to bring others and to bring our overall community along with the, up with us. And community means something different for everyone. In this digital space, uh, you could have a community of podcasters that you're trying to lift up and grow alongside. Uh, I could have a community of female wealth advisors who are spread across the country. Um, but then it's also for me about investing locally. Uh, that's also one of our Bartlett Way items because we've been in Cincinnati for such a long time as an organization. We also have an office in Chicago and we're very dedicated to our community there. But recognizing that as the ecosystem around us grows, it's a healthy place for all of us. And I think for me, there was a point where I almost left and moved over into nonprofit management. I knew I wanted to come back to Cincinnati. I was already doing long distance with my now husband back here and um, from Chicago. And I had this very chance encounter on an airplane. And I was to the point in my current role, I was like, this just isn't, it's not fitting to me. It's not speaking to my personal values any longer. I know I need to make a change. Um, finance can be somewhat of a tough field from time to time. And I said, maybe, maybe I just move over and I do nonprofit management. And I was sitting on an airplane next to a gentleman who, who ran a nonprofit. And as luck would have it, strike up a conversation. And he shared with me a story about how he was able to be successful in his job as a nonprofit leader because of the corporate leaders around him. He actually runs an, an orphanage program down in Mexico, and Lego has a very large plant in one of their communities. And he said, if it weren't for Lego and some of the corporate leaders at Lego who are able to help us finance our operations, spread the word about what we're doing, spread the, you know, the news about our children and the plight that they're in, uh, we wouldn't be where we are today. And I, I sat with that and I, and I stepped back and I thought, you know, I have this great opportunity where I am in the wealth management space to help individuals build community, to help individuals give back. And I think that's just the coolest thing is to say, you don't always have to be the first responder, but how can you think about how you can use your unique talents to build that community and to give back in a way that is super authentic to who you are, what you do, um, but may not be that you're on the front lines every day. And so I feel just very blessed that I can do that through Bartlett, through our 
financial donations, through our donations of our expertise, um, but also through our clients to help them realize what more they can do to build community and to build um, prosperity long-term. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I kind of think of the, you know, expanding the pie concept, you know, oftentimes yes. we're, what, what works for me and I'm sort of thinking about myself and as I've become more inclusive and more expansive, um, I've seen it reciprocate, you know, not that that's the motive, but it, it just, it's nice to be able to be. And of course I was involved um, on a communal level in so many ways. In fact, last night I went to an engagement party uh, of a former student nearby um, and you just catch up and it creates just such a, a deep connection, which you don't get unless you invest. It's just the way it is. And I've never so been to true. Cincinnati, but I did spend 12 years in Chicago. So I definitely do know that not only the Midwest, but the, the, the feeling of community, I think is very unique and special there. And I want to just ask you one last question for this, for this segment, Holly. And that is something I ask all of my guests because as successful, you know, we live in an Instagram world where everybody looks so polished and filtered and, and exactly so. Um, but we all have failures. We all have challenges, struggles, et cetera. And oftentimes those failures lead us to our very best opportunities, push us through and create the, um, the, the excellence that we eventually attain. So talk us through, please, one of your failures, something that sets you up for eventual success and really has uh, kind of been an anchor for you um, in your pathway. When I think of failures, I, I hate that word because <laughs> it's so hard. Um, it's so hard to live with. And I know that for many of our listeners, it's a tough one to look back and say, yeah, some things didn't go exactly as planned. Uh, so I've had plenty of them along the way. And at this point, looking backwards, it's I like to say that they were redirections. And I think that that's an important lesson for all of us is that even a failure can be a gift. Um, a wonderful book, Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Charmaine has helped me see this even better that all of those things that go wrong in our lives can be a wonderful gift if we see it in that right light. And um, two instances for me, I tried to move to New York from Chicago and work in private equity. And I think I got turned down probably four or five different times from different private equity firms. And finally, I opened my eyes and said, you know, maybe that's not the path I need to go down. Maybe I don't have the perfect skill sets for this. And I switched roles to a hedge fund in Chicago, and it ended up being the perfect opportunity for me and a great learning opportunity. Same thing happened when I was applying for my MBA. I applied to Stanford to their full-time MBA program, and I didn't get in. And as someone who prides herself on always learning, that was an ego blow. Sure. Um, but I ended up doing the part-time program through Northwestern at their Kellogg School of Management. Oh, I stayed cool. in Chicago. I continued to work. I didn't have to take out any debt because I was going to school at night. Um, and quite frankly, I never would have stayed with my boyfriend at the time if I had moved to California. He's now my husband. I'm you know, back in Cincinnati at Bartlett in a role that is extremely fulfilling for me. So it was a course at Kellogg around values-based leadership that really helped me come back to my roots and realize that I wanted to get back to working with individuals in the wealth management space versus 
always larger institutions. Um, and that's what drove me back to, to find an organization that was based on servant leadership, giving back to the community and always doing what's right for our nice. clients. Not to mention, I probably wouldn't have those little kiddos that I have now too. So, um, or not the same little kiddos, they'd be different in, in so many ways as the universe plots those. So I would encourage your listeners to really think about those failures as redirections. Where is nice. it sending you on a new path? Yeah, I mean, my experience, obviously each one of us is different, but uh, the fact that my school leadership tenure ended abruptly, well, maybe that's the wrong term, but it was a bit of a rocky experience towards the end for a variety of reasons. I don't think I would have been in the coaching space. I certainly would have written, wouldn't have written my book. I wouldn't have found my way back up to uh, the Northeast, which is where I'm from. A lot of different things ultimately happened from what seemed to be a real punch in the gut uh, at that time. And I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying that um, you know, getting through those things is, is a walk in the park. But if you can see that it's the opportunity in front of you, there's always something, um, you know, as, as a, I'm just going to mention this real quick, as a, uh, as an observant Orthodox Jew. So I, I have a certain belief. You mentioned, I think the universe, I think of it as God, but, but either way that the idea of a test, right, that we're being tested in life and that you, you're not tested if you can't pass. Right? Going back to my education example, there's no point in testing a student if you know the student isn't going to pass, right? Even frankly, if you know your students well, you probably don't need to test them that way, regardless, different conversation. But the idea is that a test is always there to help you grow. And every circumstance, every challenge has the same outcome. If we see it that way, and if we, if we run through the finish line and if we chase it rather than run away from it and say, woe is me. So with that little, you know, burst of inspiration, I'm going to ask you the most important question ever, the worst mispronunciation of your name, Holly. Oh, I've gotten Mazaroko. I've gotten some version of Mazuzu, um, Mazakoa. <laughs> I'm thinking I of the Hebrew mezuzah. I don't know if you know what that is on the door. Yes, post. on the door. Yeah, that's yeah right. I'm. That's right. I, okay. I'm a Catholic, but my uh, college roommate was also a very observant uh, Jew, and I learned so much from her. But I'm also listening to a wonderful podcast uh, called The Bible in a Year, and mm. I've learned so much more about the Jewish faith walking through the Old Testament, and it's just an go. amazing connection there. Um, so anyway, yes, tons of mispronunciations, but once you learn it, it's Mazaka. It sticks with you. <laughs> okay, so my wife and I are different on this one. Shower morning or evening? Morning, always. Morning. Okay, me as well. Kind of the curly hair. It's the curly <laughs> hair. Yeah. I have it too, but I just don't let it grow out far enough. And whatever <laughs> I have left, I'm trying to hold on to. Uh, the, your favorite kind of book to read? Historical fiction. Nice. And then finally, a question I ask everybody: a productivity tip that helps you to get more done planning your day in advance and laying out the one thing that at the end of the day, if you accomplish that, you'll feel really successful. Do you do that in the morning or the night before? Ideally the night before, but admittedly with three kids at home, sometimes I fall asleep um, in the process of putting them to bed, but I always wake up early before the rest of the family is awake. And that's my quiet time to really center myself for the day ahead. And I do it then. Nice. The reason I ask is because I've seen a number of people talk about 
doing it the night before to let your subconscious work on it while you're sleeping. So yes. that's a nugget for people to hear. All right. So how can people connect with you, learn more about your work, just you know, start to take advantage of all the skill and expertise you've you've developed for yourself, you know, over the past many years. I would welcome anyone to connect with me on LinkedIn and our website for Bartlett is B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T 1898.com. You can find me there as well. And the, and the 1898, is that a particular significance, I assume? It is. Bartlett was founded in 1898. So we are a firm with a very long legacy, uh, but a very modern forward-looking approach to how we work with our clients. Nice. Okay. So Holly, as I told you before we started, I needed you to hold on to one life lesson, one nugget to end our episode. Kindly share with my listeners one final thought uh, to wrap things up. I'd encourage you to work through the process of determining your personal pillars. It has really helped me be able to say no and not no because it's not a worthwhile cause. But as we were saying earlier, there's only so many hours in the day and so many opportunities that you can really truly invest in. And if you know what those three or four primary pillars are, it's going to allow you to stay much more focused on that end life vision. Oh, wow. Okay. What a great way to end. Holly, it's been a pleasure meeting you. I'm so glad that my previous podcast guest, Brian Burke, made this connection. Go Cincinnati. Um, <laughs> was, was, was rooting for the Bengals there, but uh, certainly you have a, a lot of upside. And um, I look forward to developing and deepening our relationship moving forward. Thank you so much for being with me today. I do too. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 